today on Ag News Daily. We asked consumers how long they think it takes to bring a pesticide to market. Their answer was six months. The reality is that my companies will spend anywhere from eight to 10 years doing the research that is necessary. Well, listeners, welcome back to the Ag News Daily Podcast. You've got Wet Noodle alongside <laughs> Health here on a beautiful Thursday in late morning. How's Delaney doing? I'm good. How are you, Wet Noodle? <laughs> well, I'm still trying to figure out why you call me a Wet Noodle to well, start off with. A Wet Noodle is like when you find a person and they're just kind of blah, like a wet noodle, like they just stick to things and they just kind of slide down the wall very slowly. They're kind of blah. So You're not you always a wet get, noodle. Are you trying to get rid of me? Is that this, it well, just sticks here? I have your cane, you let me on the show and well, now you just can't get rid of me. Yeah. Maybe, maybe I should have put you through more of a screening process. Huh? Uh-huh, yeah. Uh-huh. Well, maybe we've got some exciting news today and you'll get more than your wet noodle right out of that. I tell you what is exciting is today is my daughter's eighth birthday. Oh, and happy birthday come, to her. Oh, just wait. We also oh. found out in our conversations that Cassidy, who makes guest appearances every once in a while, today is her dad's birthday. We had him on the podcast. Happy birthday to Chase. Yes. So yes, we uh, we like it May twelfth here on Ag News Daily. But uh, Delaney, what do you think is out there in the news world that we want to hit first? Well, today is also WASD Report Day, Tanner. Tell your daughter that one. I bet she'll be real excited. Uh huh. It's uh, every eight year old wants to hear. <laughs> well, maybe not, but the markets certainly wanted to hear it today. We had definitely a pretty bullish report for both corn and wheat today, Tanner. Yeah, I saw that. It looked like. Um, predictions for corn and soybeans came in pretty close to the estimations that were pegged ahead of time as far as production goes, but it seems like projections fell behind when it came to uh, stocks. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm getting it pulled up here. And to be honest, I like what I like to do to read through the to through the reports is look at the numbers that come out from the actual report. But then I also kind of like to poke around and see what some of the, let's call it analysis type of folks post. And we're talking like uh, the University of Illinois. I like to look at Arlen Suderman's stuff, Karen Braun, because they typically do a really good job, Tanner, of giving kind of the highlights, the bullet points of what yeah. each of these reports do. So if Absolutely. you don't, don't mind indulging me here for a moment, um, one of the one of the big things I think for the balance sheet today that we saw was that the USDA cut corn yields. That that is kind of a big deal for them to do, especially because uh, we just are now getting planted. So it seems unusual they're cutting it already for this time of year. Yeah. So uh, looking at an article wrote by the DTN analysts, they've got corn listed here for May at 14.46 million bushels, uh, or I'm sorry, 14,460 million bushels as stated here, according to the average of that 14.77. So following, yeah, like you said, cut there a little bit off of the average to begin with. Uh, that's compared to this time last year of 15.11. So a significant uh, decrease in corn production 
Soybeans were a little higher than what came out this time last year at 4.6 compared to 4.4. Of course, that falls in pretty close to the average. So like we said, soybeans really aren't going to get a lot of momentum out of this report. But the wheat is the biggest category. And uh, what yeah. they did is it was pegged. Let's see, wheat production was pegged at 1.72, almost 1.73, up from up 83 million bushels from last year with higher projected yields offsetting the slight decrease in harvested area. But globally, the production is forecasted uh, at seven, 774 million metric tons lower than last year. That's a big look at Ukraine estimates coming in at less than half of their acres down, mm-hmm. or I'm uh, sorry, less than half of their yield down for what they were looking at doing. And then of course, exports um, over there look pretty dire as well. Yeah, they certainly adjusted uh, Ukraine's crop. They said about 54% lower with exports down about 61%. Wheat production in Ukraine is expected to be down about 35%. And these numbers again, are as of May 1st, I believe, uh, what they anticipate to happen. So of course, these numbers still will likely change. But they did note that Russia's recent military invasion of Ukraine significantly increased the uncertainty. And so the May WASD is only a short-term assessment of impacts of these obviously military action. So again, could see them change pretty drastically on next month's report as we continue to have new information from Russia, Ukraine. But the USDA also reduced its outlook for soybeans and uh, corn in Argentina and unchanged for corn and soybean production in Brazil. So they reduced estimates not very substantially on the corn side of things, about a million metric tons on the soybean side of things for Argentina. But also, again, that still just continues to point to some bullish sentiment. And and Tanner, I think, highlights the bigger story here that we are seeing a lot of production issues worldwide. Yeah, it seems like in one form or fashion, everybody is being impacted, whether it's wet areas in the Corn Belt, extreme dry areas in the Southwest, We've got export issues as well as trade relations. It just seems like there are so many factors that can, one, have a big or small influence that causes volatility in our market. But yeah, uh, it'll be interesting when we close out today to hit where markets are at during our recording. But I'm green across the board when I look at things here as we get ready to jump into our regular news items. But for a second here, let's pause for a message from Grasshopper Mowers. It doesn't matter whether you're on the backfield or the front yard. On Mo Day, perfection is a game of inches. It's a battle of fence line and fierce terrain. Out there, on that grasshopper mower, you don't let anything stop your stripes. Nothing stands in the way of a job well done. For more on Mo Day and grasshopper mowers, visit grasshoppermower.com. All right, Delaney, our listeners, as they are true to patronizing us, uh, probably remember way back to when I first started that I reported on an invasive species of earthworm coming along. But listeners, if you missed that story, here's your challenge. You now have to go back and listen to every show that I was a part of since starting to see if you can catch that article, because I'm not going to catch you up. I'm going to give you an update 
that that worm has now been found in 11 counties in Iowa. So invasive as it states, it's here and hitting part of the Corn Belt. Well, that's very exciting. I remember you talking was about, wasn't this, wasn't there something about worms jumping too? Was that part yes, of that their nickname? Story? That's correct. Their nickname is the jumping worm because they move in a more erratic fashion than a regular earthworm. And mm. um, just wanted to announce that one to begin with, to go along with the wet noodle saga. Yeah, I was thinking that, that we too. started off with. We could, uh-huh. we could call you wet worm <laughs> instead of wet noodle if you prefer that. I'd prefer jumping worm. It sounds a little more exciting. <laughs> or that sounds like a Native American name, like, you know, the whispering bull. You are the jumping worm. The jumping worm. That might stick. I hope I hope my co-hosts from Farm for Profit don't catch on to this. Oh, I'll have to, yeah, I'll have to text Corey and let him know. <laughs> well, on a little bit of a more serious note, Tanner, President Biden yesterday was touring lots of different Illinois farms and facilities and gave some interesting remarks. Have you seen some of these? I have. I have, certainly. Uh, it's a risk that we all need to take, and it started to encourage double cropping. Yes, well. that is one of them. He apparently was on a farm. I think the gentleman's name was Jeff O'Connor in Illinois, uh, showed him how he double crops. And President Biden said, quote, we have the ability to raise two crops in one growing season while simultaneously providing conservation benefits. I'm sorry, O'Connor stated that, not Biden. Um, And so mostly the remarks were from Biden to potentially look at doing some double cropping. He also said that America is fighting on two fronts. We're fighting inflation and rising prices domestically. We're also fighting uh, for feeding the world and so encouraged farmers to produce as much as they possibly could this year. He said farmers are the breadbasket of democracy. And so some interesting ideas overall, but I don't know, Tanner, do you think he understands that we can't really double crop this year? Uh, I don't know if he fully grasped the concept. Obviously, the farm that he was on has participated in that and has the technology and experience to do that. His encouragements were to the crop insurance side of things to allow better policy terms for those Mm -hmm. who are double cropping. Because right now, uh, the best of my understanding is you can only insure one crop annually. Mm -hmm. So it does not incentivize a lot of farmers to put the risk out there for a potential failed second crop. But they announced kind of a three-pronged plan that double cropping was one to potentially incentivize farmers to plant more wheat, allowing them then to follow with soybeans. Uh, also talked about programs like Equip and CSP working to prioritize technology to manage the nutrients. Obviously, that's again focused on water quality, um, and they're already funded in the Farm Bill to encourage that aid and technical assistance, and then domestic fertilizer. Uh, He announced that they've committed $250 million to boost domestic fertilizer. The White House has decided after that announcement, even before this article was released, to double that funding to $500 million. So um, I I still think a lot of pomp and circumstance, as Cassidy and I talked about yesterday, but certainly is never a bad thing to have agriculture viewed as the breadbasket of democracy to have a play into some of these government policies, at least. Yeah. And it's interesting because as you look at, you know, these, this three-pronged approach, again, all good ideas in theory, but not something that we can put in place for this year. 
and I don't, I think that's a little bit of the DC disconnect. I talked about this yesterday to the Wyoming Bankers Association, but you know, sometimes I think policymakers think they have these great ideas, but they don't understand the reality that to put something like this in place, we need to be planning for that basically now for this year, or sorry, right. now for next year. Right. And Cassidy and I had a conversation yesterday about even the aid for drought packages and wildfires is just how far delayed those funds are and potentially can come too late when they actually do arrive. But I, I'm curious, Delaney, are you said the Washington Bankers Association? Sorry, the Wyoming. Did I say Washington? Uh, no, I think you said Wyoming. I just only half listened. Oh, okay, uh, thanks. But are they as cool as bankers are here in Iowa? Well, they they were actually pretty cool, Tanner. They have different issues that impact their, let's say, lendies a little differently than what we have here in Iowa. But I like for whatever reason, I've gotten to speak to a lot of different banking associations over the past couple of years. And it's interesting to talk through some of the issues impacting their folks because they just are really vastly different. Oh, I don't doubt that one bit. Well, I better be a little bit more cognizant of my abilities here because I may get replaced by one of those uh, Wyoming bankers. Well, there you go. You better keep it up, Tanner. Keep yourself uh -huh. in top line. I'll do that. I'll stick then with a really good transition into another Biden decision. So the Biden administration has now canceled a couple of the massive oil and gas lease sales that we reported about. So they have uh, canceled one of the most high profile leases that was pending. Uh, the department announced on Wednesday, even though fuel prices are still skyrocketing. So over 1 million acres in the Alaska's Cook Inlet is along one of the two leases, the other being in the Gulf of Mexico, that has been halted. So we announced that those were gonna come up for bid where companies could then draw, drill on government land. And now two of the largest contracts available have been removed during that gas lease sale process. Uh, Tanner, it's interesting, you know, you're talking about that. I got to see yesterday in Wyoming when I was driving between Denver and Lusk, some oil, I, I think it was oil production, you know, with the big things that are drilling and pulling out of the ground. That's oil, is it not? Uh, it can be various different products, but yes, normally those are, are either natural gas wells or uh, oil. Yep. Okay, okay. Well, interesting. I got to see some of that. Not sure which one it was firsthand out there in Wyoming, but Tanner, I have just one final story. I guess I should have pulled this in when we were talking through WASD numbers, but you know, we saw, like I said, that reduction in corn yield today dropped from a 181 last month to a 177 this month. And production is obviously a question mark here, but a lot of folks are now pointing to lower yields due to just the lateness of this year's planting season. Iowa State agronomist Mark Licht said that Iowa farmers are definitely unlikely to net high yields this year because of planting delays, as well as significantly cold weather patterns. He said the impact of de the delay will depend heavily on farmers' progress in the next two weeks as well as obviously weather conditions. And we're getting really hot, dry weather this week. So certainly hope that helps things move right along here. But it's interesting, Tanner, I was messaging with a gentleman in, I think, Northwest Iowa. Um, and he said that they just kind of gotten planted as of Saturday, they started. And he said between today and Saturday, they were 80% planted on their corn. So, you know, 
if we need to, we can really get the corn or soybeans in the ground fairly quickly, assuming we have good, you know, weather days. Yeah. And that's, so my family farm is Northwest Iowa as well. And same thing, dad's hoping to wrap up corn planting today, uh, as far as if everything goes smooth, but same thing, Mm -hmm. they were kind of kept out of the field, either temperatures wise or weather conditions that, uh, kept them out until the beginning of this week. But like you said, we do have a lot of operations that are sized yes. to go when the time is right. We're seeing yep. a lot of that. Well, Sandra, I just wanted to add one other quick thing here. And again, looking at the Twitter machine, um, Arlen Suderman and Josh Linville, both StoneX guys, were looking at some data as far as the speed at which we could actually plant. And the single biggest U.S. percentage corn planting gain in one week was a 43% jump back in 2013. And I like this tweet. I reshared it on my account because it really puts in perspective how many acres that is to hit that 43% number. It's about 38 and a half million acres getting planted in seven days, which breaks down to about 3,800 acres per minute. Oh, I wondered how far you were going to break that down because oh, I, was yeah. quickly doing, I was quickly doing the week division. Um, but that is fascinating. 3,800 acres per minute. Yes. I thought that was fascinating too. No, that is great. Well, I wonder how many acres per minute you could mow with a grasshopper mower. So let's pause for a message from them. It doesn't matter whether you're on the backfield or the front yard. On mow day, perfection is a game of inches. It's a battle of fence line and fierce terrain. Out there, on that grasshopper mower, you don't let anything stop your stripes. Nothing stands in the way of a job well done. For more on Mow Day and Grasshopper Mowers, visit grasshoppermower.com. I know I shouldn't be that proud of that transition, but I thought that was a killer grasshopper mowers transition. So let's kill one more article here before we get the market highlights for today. And that is, again, reported on ethanol production. It has risen to its highest in a month. Ethanol outputs rose to the highest level in the last 40 days, while inventories increased for the first time in six weeks. So we reported on this last week. We try to touch it each time. Of course, this last production was 991,000 barrels per day average for the week ended May 6th. That's up from the 969 that were reported last week. Again, nice to see that production is up and finally stocks are starting to rebuild. Hopefully we can utilize some of that momentum to lower the prices at the pump for our listeners. Yes, I was in uh, drive. I don't even know where I was at this point yesterday, but was looking at gas prices. Tanner had to stop and pull over and fill up a little bit. $4.79 in rural Wyoming for gasoline and almost six bucks for diesel. Wow, I feel bad for those Wyoming bankers. Yes, I know. It's not a very economical uh, to fill up your big pickup truck out in Wyoming. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm not going to comment any further. Okay, that's good. We'll just leave it at that, Tanner. But uh, like you mentioned earlier, commodities, of course, are having a fairly positive reaction to today's WASD report. High, higher across the board in corn, soybeans, and wheat. Live cattle lower today, feeder cattle lower today, and lean hogs are lower today as well. So 
That's where the commodity markets are as of about noon central time here today. I'm sure they will have a little bit of volatility before things close up tomorrow. And then, of course, we'll be able to see where they finish the week out tomorrow, Tanner. Yeah, certainly. Well, I think it's about time to jump into one of the conversations that you had in, had out in D.C., correct? I believe today we are turning it over to my conversation with Chris Novak of Crop Life America. Catching up with Chris Novak, president and CEO of Crop Life America here in Washington, D.C. Chris, thank you so much for joining today. My pleasure, Delaney. So, Chris, for those of our listeners who are not familiar with Crop Life America, give us a 10,000 foot view of how you guys fit into the ag space. Crop Life America represents the manufacturers and distributors of agricultural chemicals uh, across the U.S. Uh, we also have a subsidiary called Rise, uh, which then represents specialty manufacturers. So uh, Rise will work on golf courses and turf and landscape management, rodenticide. But crop, at Crop Life, we are focused on ensuring that farmers have the tools they need to control weeds and insects. Now, Chris, that's a very tough job, it feels like, during COVID. And into 2022 with lots of headlines of shortages of different inputs and rocketing prices. How are you guys managing that this year? It, it certainly is the biggest challenge that we're facing right now from the standpoint that we know farmers are moving into the field. Planting season is well underway. And we know that, that many of them may be looking for products that they can use during this growing season. We've had a number of issues that have disrupted supply, starting with COVID and the labor labor shortages that have uh, come across the entire economy. But we also had natural disasters. There was a freeze in Texas a year ago that, that uh, shut down several manufacturing plants that were supplying ingredients to our industry. We saw Hurricane Ida, which idled, idled uh, one of the major glyphosate production plants for several weeks. And on top of that, then we've seen trade disruptions where we have ingredients that come from other places around the globe and getting those products delivered has been a challenge. So we are working through all of those issues. In part, reaching out to the government, EPA did allow us to make some substitutions on ingredients uh, because EPA looks over our shoulder. So even if we're changing one ingredient that isn't part of our active pesticide formulation, but it's it's something that helps make the pesticide work better. If we change that out, that still requires EPA approval, and that takes time. They were they were responsive last spring when we asked for uh, them to approve some substitutes. We're continuing to look at what are those types of barriers where government can make an impact in ensuring that we can continue to speed the manufacture of products for our farm customers. And that EPA regulation component, I think, is a big question mark because you obviously have to jump through a lot of hoops to make those things happen. What does that process look like? Is it a long timeline? I mean, how quickly can you move if, if the key ingredient in glyphosate, for example, is unavailable on the market? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll start with the first part of your question. We did some consumer research uh, over the last year, and we asked consumers how long they think it takes to bring a pesticide to market. Their answer was six months. The reality is that my companies will spend anywhere from eight to 10 years doing the research that is necessary. So once they, once they have what's called proof of concept, they discover a product that they think can work, they obviously then have to do the testing to ensure that it's safe for humans, 
to ensure that it's safe for, for wildlife and other non-target species, uh, to understand how that product moves through the water and the soil. They do all of that research. They put that together in an application. And the EPA is supposed to take two years to review that portfolio and, and then issue an approval or you know, ask the company to make changes in terms of what they're proposing. EPA is now taking at least three and with new regulatory changes that are coming relative to the Endangered Species Act, it may take EPA four years to approve a new product. So when you look at 12 to 14 years to bring a new product to market, when you look at the, the hurdles that we have to get new ingredients approved, there are a significant number of regulatory barriers that are in place today. So how do you move quickly in years like this where, you know, glyphosate, glufosinate, those are two that I think top of mind for producers and of course fertilizer and all of those other things too, but there are a lot of chemical and herbicide shortages that farmers are concerned about. Part, part of our message to EPA and USDA right now is simply be aware of the fact that there are product shortages and don't impose new rules or regulations that may further limit or restrict the supplies that are available to farmers. We are helping them to understand that there is a supply chain crisis and that farmers need more tools now, not fewer. And I think that segues nicely into the discussion of doing more with less because you know, we're in potentially a food shortage or a food crisis this year due to the Russia-Ukraine uh, situation. How do you work within that space of understanding that regulatory change takes time, but also understanding there are some big players out there right now impacting our food availability? Right. And, and I'll, I'll back up to the example that I provided before, you know, those consumers who think it takes six months and, and when they understand that there is this extensive research uh, investment that goes into developing our products and, and an extensive regulatory process, they actually have more confidence in the safety of the pesticides that we're using on the farm. So that's a positive. The, the flip side and the heart of your question, as we see disruptions that come from climate change or disruptions that come from a, a, a war uh, that is unfortunate and unexpected, that takes out what Ukraine was producing and providing to the global market. And so, you know, other countries around the world that weren't necessarily purchasing U.S. agricultural commodities before may now be turning to the U.S. And so that that helps create or add to the, the supply chain issues and the shortages that we expect to, to really start to hit home later this year. I think the only thing that we can do is ensure that farmers do have fewer restrictions, that there isn't any government policies in place that are restricting them, for example, from uh, double cropping, uh, which is something common in parts of the country, but uh, there are USDA rules and regulations that may limit a farmer's ability uh, to plant a second crop in the summer. Some of the pesticide restrictions may reduce a farmer's opportunity to be flexible with the management of their cropland. Those are barriers that are imposed by government that government we're asking government to take a hard look at and change so that we can allow for more food production. Chris, it's very evident that you are passionate about these topics in the agricultural industry. Tell us a little bit more about your background. How did you get into this? 
Well, Delaney, I'm I'm an Iowa farm kid. Uh, I grew up on a farm north of uh, Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Uh, my father also had an off-farm job, though, uh, as uh, selling fertilizer and chemicals to, to local cooperatives that uh, serve farmers across the state of Iowa. So this has been uh, life and history. Uh, I've had uh, the wonderful opportunity to serve pork producers and corn growers and work in the soybean industry. And so understanding uh, the need for technology and innovation that farmers have but also ensuring that we're communicating to consumers that the fact that farming has changed over my lifetime. And I look at our, our farm in Eastern Iowa and how it is better environmentally today than what it was 30 or 40 years ago. And that's a story that we simply just don't tell often enough. But you're telling it and that's the important part. You're helping me tell it. So thank you very much. Chris, before I let you go, if folks have questions about Crop Life, Crop Life America and want to find out more information, where can they head? CropLifeAmerica.org has uh, more information about our members, but also a lot of the issues that we're working on, including the Endangered Species Act and what we're doing to try to secure additional funding for the Environmental Protection Agency, which most consumers may not necessarily understand, but we need a, we need a strong functioning regulatory agency. Fantastic. Chris, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Delaney. Well, again, a big thank you there to Chris Tanner. This was not aired on the podcast, but the night before we recorded this interview, he gave quite the little sponsor ditty. It was kind of a little broadcast he wrote. Definitely was PG-13, quite hilarious, but uh, Chris is a good guy. I like having conversations with him. He's very entertaining. Now you said PG thirteen. Yeah. Was, was that was that your attempt at saying it was a little bit cheeky or it was a little was cheeky? No, it was a little cheeky. Oh. It was quite amusing. It was probably honestly the best sponsorship message I have ever heard at an event. Awesome! That is really great to hear, listeners. Today was a little bit longer than usual. We were probably a little bit more on the spunky side, thanks to Delaney calling me a wet noodle and it being the birthday day for May 12th. So thanks for hanging around with us. Don't forget to check out Grasshopper Mowers. Follow their hashtag Mow Day for more of their information. But Delaney, what do you say? Should we let the listeners go? Let's let them go.